It's interesting. You got a book blurb from um, Jeff Perlman. Yes. It's kind of related to your book, but it, I interviewed him for his Bo Jackson book, the one that just recently oh, came cool. out. Oh, cool. And yeah. um, I said to him, like, your name comes up a lot. Like, he seems to help a lot of writers or, like, give them book blurbs or do, like, he's kind of involved in that sports writing community. And he was like, yeah. Yeah, when I was much younger, I used to be an asshole. That was his direct word. And he was like, yeah. I didn't care about anybody else. I was the best. Like, it was kind of like a very Gary Payton kind of like uh, yeah. attack mode, right? He was like, and so as he got older, he realized that his success uh, doesn't, or somebody else's success doesn't detract from his success. Right, right. Yeah, no, and it's uh, someone like him is going to get asked a lot, you know, to, you know, and he's so prolific in his work that. He just might not have time for it. So, yeah, I definitely wasn't, um, you know, necessarily expecting it, but uh, but I was grateful to him for it. Yo, welcome to my summer layer. I'm your host, Sammy. I talk trash even more than Oscar the Grouch Yunnan. Let's hop on the DeLorean and go back in time to game one of the 1997 NBA Finals. The score is tied at 82 with 9.2 seconds left in the game. It's the Chicago Bulls with Jordan and Pippen versus the Utah Jazz with Karl Malone and John Stockton. Game 5 of the 1997 NBA Finals is Jordan's famous flu game. But before all that, we gotta finish Game 1. Karl Malone was fouled by Dennis Rodman with 9.2 seconds left, and with the score tied, he had a chance to give the Jazz the lead. At the time, as he stepped up to the free throw line, Karl Malone was a 74.2% shooter. 74% is pretty decent. He should make at least one of these literally called free throws. Before shooting his two key free throws, Scottie Pippen said to Karl Malone, the mailman doesn't deliver on Sundays. Turns out Pippen was right. The mailman did not deliver on Sundays. Karl would go on to miss two free throws in a row the Bulls rebounded, and Michael Jordan scored the game winner. They won game one. The Jazz, of course, would go on to lose the entire finals. What Pippen said to Malone, the mailman doesn't deliver on Sundays, is highly effective trash talking. Oh my gosh, I heart trash talking so, so much. That's why I was elated. Rafi Cohen has written Trash Talk, the only book about destroying your rivals that isn't total garbage. This book is fantastic. I so enjoyed reading it, and I honestly <laughs> can't bring myself to trash talk it. It's really good. Rafi's book explores trash talking through a number of notable lenses, from art to science to psychology. I opened this My Summer Layer conversation drawing trash talking parallels with graffiti because it's the same cultural impulse. It's all the same culture. Basketball and hip hop and graffiti and trash talking are all the same culture. Just like going to France and you get wine and cheese and baguettes, art and more. It's all the same culture. With basketball and hip-hop and graffiti and trash-talking, yes, it's all the same culture. But more importantly, it's our culture. This episode, this My Summer Layer episode is gloriously dedicated to everyone who grew up watching NBA in the 90s. If you don't know what I'm talking about, yo, there's the door. Tell your fat mom I said hi when you get home. Don't be basic. You'll dig this episode, so share it. Find a friend, find a foe, and share it. There's no reason why this podcast, with this episode on trash talking, can't take out Joe Brogan for at least one episode. Joe has the biggest podcast in the world, but only, only for today. Tomorrow always comes with fresh stories and different stories. We didn't all come this far just to back down now, right? Especially, especially to a podcast host who couldn't get his facts right if he was left to his own devices. Yo, let's go. Sound, the final frontier. My Summer Lair is an enterprise, a pop culture voyage with a continuing mission to explore strange new worlds to seek out new creators and celebrate established producers, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now here is your host, Sammy Yunan. I, I typically start off interviews, and you, you might have a similar technique too, where like I ask a couple of like softball questions to kind of ease into sure. the topic. But for this one, though, 
uh, I want to get to the heart of the matter because I adore trash talking. <laughs> like, uh, that's my jam. You talk about like the actual term was coined in the early 80s and then it really took off in the 90s in your book, Trash Talk, the only book about destroying your rivals. So I think that's part of why it feels like I like it so much because it's got that, that 80s, 90s vibe to it. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, obviously, you know, as I you know, you know, make the case in the book, trash talk is, is really nothing new. It's something that's existed throughout time and across cultures. You know, this, this idea of, you know, com- competitive incivility, you know, talking crap, you know, whatever name it's gone by. But to your point, trash talk as a term didn't exist, you know, until the 1980s and then really blew up. Uh, in popularity in the 1990s, you know, 1993 was kind of the year of trash talk when, you know, Sports Illustrated and the New York Times and all these major national publications were writing trend stories about it as this kind of exotic new phenomenon, this thing that was taking over the sports world. And so I think there is something, I mean, this wasn't my intention with writing the book, but I think there is something uh, sort of inescapably 90s about our conception of trash talk because of the basketball players that were coming up at that time and as hip-hop was sort of trickling into the culture and taking over the culture that there's this you know there's just like this cocktail of kind of visuals and verbals and you know um that, that that are kind of all wrapped up together and you can think about it in terms of like these you know, these neon and pastel colors with and starter jackets and, you know, images of, you know, Gary Payton sort of jawing at someone on the court. It all just like, I think for sports fans of the 90s, I think it just screams 1990s. Yeah, it's funny you make mention like hip hop and even that it's been like, uh, it's had different terms or different incarnations throughout the centuries. Like reading your book, it reminded me a lot of graffiti. Right. Which, of course, we've been drawing on walls for like forever <laughs> since the early man. Right. And for me, like when I see graffiti, like I'm in New York or Detroit or L.A. or something and I see graffiti, and I'm like, oh, and I go to right to the wall and right to the mural and I look at it and I take photos and I look at the, the colors and the style and whatever. I find it all very thrilling. Other people, they look at graffiti and then they're like, this is urban decay or like this is a terrible neighborhood. Sometimes there's even a little hint of racism kind of under like their tone, like the way they're talking about graffiti. And <laughs> trash talking kind of falls in that same thing as graffiti, right? Like it's, it's very kind of like old school 90s, but also at the same time kind of like very polarizing in terms of like how people view it. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think graffiti, you know, sort of, again, the, the kind of uh, the aesthetics of graffiti very much fit into that kind of 1990s vibe um, of, tra- you know, that, in the same way that trash talk fits into them. Uh, and of course, graffiti comes out, you know, you know, is one of the pillars of hip hop mm-hmm. and, you know, hip hop and the sort of, you know, the 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 influences like the dozens. Right. You know, uh, this this game of traded insults that's endemic to black American communities informs what we now think of as as modern American trash talk. And so I think graffiti is very much coming from that same, you know, cultural impulse and this idea for both like cultural expression, artistic expression, personal expression, right? And and it can mean so many different things to so many different people. And of course, it can be appropriated in different ways. I mean, you know, a, a gang tagging a wall is very different than an artist who's, you know, sees, you know, the side of a train as his or her canvas. Mm-hmm. So I think the way we've, you know, the way we look at graffiti uh, is very much as the way, you know, is very personal in the same way that the way we hear trash talk is very personal, right? And sort of the, the values we ascribe to that probably say more about us yeah. than what they do about, you know, the person who is talking the shit mm-hmm. or, you know, spraying the wall. And, and yeah, this idea that, we, that we will kind of, um, that we will ascribe sort of morality and moral judgment to these things, you know, speaks to kind of cultural conventions or cultural ideas and metrics like sportsmanship, 
right? This idea of being a good sport, mm -hmm. but who gets to define what it means to be a good sport and whose culture is represented in that. That's one of the things that when in the 1990s, after Trash Talk became, you know, sort of as popularized as it was, there was a backlash, right? And there's this was idea that maybe this was unsporting behavior and needed to be policed in some ways, needed to be penalized. But the lens through which we were viewing it was this kind of, you know, white American lens of sportsmanship, which didn't account for the sort of, you know, the cultural input or the cultural um just you know the expressions that may that may come up from you know uh you know from someone who grew up playing in Oakland California on the playgrounds who grew up in a culture of of trash talk in the dozens in hip hop uh and so i think graffiti is very much the same thing in that way absolutely you used a great phrase because you're talking about the culture right now and you used a great phrase in the book you were writing about Gary Payton and his motor mouth his infamous motor mouth and you use the phrase that you use was cultural imperative. That was kind mm -hmm. of like what was his like uh, spark or his fuel, I guess, was this cultural imperative. And again, this circles back to graffiti as you're talking about the four elements of hip hop. Like, that's why I was never uh, afraid when I go into a neighborhood and I see graffiti or or I saw like trash talking like with Reggie Miller and Gary Payton, those guys back in the 90s. Like, it, to me, it was all the same cultural expression. What did you mean by like a cultural imperative? Can you kind of unpack that a little bit more? Yeah. Um, so I think it's some of the things we, you know, we were saying in terms of this idea of, you know, personal expression, artistic expression, competitive expression. It's the idea that you can be yourself on the court, right? The idea that you can compete as your true self. You don't need to somehow aim, you know, who you are, the way you interact and, you know, a big part of, the, I think, the, the policing and the penalization of trash talk, especially in the 1990s, was about control. It was about controlling behavior, controlling, you know, the, you know, the expressions, uh, the celebrations, you know, most notably of black athletes, because it was seen as somehow transgressive. It was seen as outside the norm because, you know, the league administrators, the officials didn't grow up in that culture. Right. And. So I think there is an, in some ways, there's an imperative for everybody to be themselves, to be able to show up as their as their true self, to compete as their true self. Someone like to use the example of Gary Payton, right? Very clearly grew up in a trash talk environment. Mm -hmm. His dad was a trash talker. There was trash talk, you know, on the playground. There was trash talk in high school. There was trash talk off the playground, right? I mean, it's, you know, games like the dozens. And so that is, you know, again, that 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 informs then not only kind of like who you are as a person, but also in terms of how you compete. The, the idea of playing basketball and not talking trash was almost, you know, you know, it, it was it was it was an impossibility for, you know, for Gary Payton. Like you were stripping away part of his game, part of who he is, you know, and if he can't do that. Then, like I, so there's a cultural. The, the I think the the phrase cultural imperative is in fact almost like a. It's almost a moral imperative in some ways. It's a more moral imperative for all of us to kind of understand, you know, create space for people to show up as their authentic selves, to compete as their authentic selves. Another example of this, just to give a quick tangent, you can look at. This is, you know, for American and North American audiences, the idea of there being trash talk and cricket is probably, you know, so contrary to what our expectations are. A gentleman's game. Gentleman's game. But there is, in fact, a ton of trash talk in cricket. It's called sledging. And nowhere was this more the case than in Australia. And especially in, you know, in Australia from the 1970s and into the 1990s. And there was a culture of sledging you know, in Australia that existed both within, you know, sort of, you know, uh, you know, club and amateur settings for cricket, but, but beyond, you know, people just gave each other shit, right? It's a way, it's a way to express intimacy in the same way we think about the dozens and the way, same way we think about razzing our friends when we're just hanging out. And when they showed up to international competitions, and this is even more so, I would say, in, in the 1970s, when they really sort of broke onto the stage and they and they and they arrived as this as this you know sensibility clash with everyone else. Um, 
you know, it wasn't just that they were talking shit because it w- they were looking for a competitive advantage. They did want to play an aggressive style of cricket. But it was an expression of their Australian-ness, right? Mm-hmm. Like asserting themselves on the global stage. And so for someone like Gary Payton or Serena Williams, you know, you know, especially you can think about her, you know, and some of the tournaments where she's you know, been confronted with like at Indian Wells where notoriously she refused to play because of the racism she confronted there but to celebrate in a way that is true to yourself and true to your culture you know is a way to proclaim here I am and I belong you know to celebrate yourselves in those moments and so I do think that there is an imperative to it because I think you know I think what it speaks to is you know sort of like a deeply healthy thing (laughs) Yeah, this authentic self and uh, expressing yourself and who you are, like, is this book, uh, your trash talk, is this book, is this a self-help book or is this like kind of like a sarcastic how to win friends and influence people by trash talking them manual in a sense? It's definitely not a manual in a traditional sense. You're not going to read this and get like a how-to guide of uh, you know, how to sort of get into someone's head on the court. Uh, that being said, I mean, I, is, is it, is it, it's, it's not a a self-help book either, but I do think, I think my goal for the book was more than anything, just to take trash talk seriously, you know, as a topic with real gravity, Mm -hmm. as something that has been dismissed, you know, especially in the United States culturally as frivolous, right. As something that's unserious, as something that is just noise, but I think by doing that, we're ignoring not only the ways that, you know, trash talk can explain not only our sort of modern culture and our modern selves to us within America within the last 30 to 50 years, but also we can understand something about ourselves as social and competitive creatures if we actually explore it as this kind of mode of communication, you know, this this language of competition that has existed throughout time. All that being said, I do think that if you read this book the right way, you can become a better trash talker. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and it's not because it's not because I'm going to give you some like incredible insult that nobody can come back from. I mean, that would be impossible because the best trash talk for any individual person is going to be individualized no matter mm-hmm. what. Um you tailor it. Yeah, you have to. Mm-hmm. But also because you like If you want to be an effective and strategic trash talker, you have to understand how this stuff works. And to understand how it works, you have to take it seriously, which was my whole goal, right? To to unpack not just the history of it, the culture of it, the evolution of it, but also to look at the underlying science and the psychology of it, you know, to understand what are the mechanisms at play, to understand what makes someone more sensitive, you know, or not. Uh, So that, so I do think, you know, again, that like this is not like a, a like a snaps book of you know joke book, mm-hmm. but at the same time, if you want to read this and become a better trash talker, you will become a better trash talker. What you're talking about too is like uh, stand up comedy. I think a lot of people just assume that like Kevin Hart or Dave Chappelle or one of these guys is just naturally funny. They just get up and they tell some stories, and there is an element of that as well, but. As Seinfeld has proven repeatedly, there's a, a science to writing a joke, right? And the word choices that you make and like you can you can figure out how to construct a joke properly and that'll make you a better comic. And it's the same thing. It's not always like with like uh, trash talking. It's not always just making fun of the kid just because he's fat or he was wearing glasses, like the obvious things. Th- those sometimes don't pierce the skin because it's just they're so obvious. But if you can figure out a better way to kind of package your... Uh, sarcasm, your snaps, right? Then they have a better chance of like hitting uh, the prime target. Yeah, I mean, I I get into this a little bit where when we talk about the, um, I talk about roast battle in the book, right? Which is uh, sort of like rap battle. For people who don't know, it's rap battle, but with, you know, uh, two comics who are insulting each other back and forth. Jeff Ross is really famous for that. If people see him, yeah. like the bald guy. Yeah, he's uh, the, the roast master who I had a chance to spend some time with. But I and I also spent time with a roast joke writer named Mike Lawrence, and he talks about emotional roasting, right? It's this idea 
that you like as you were saying you don't you don't say the obvious thing sometimes the obvious thing may be the thing to say if someone has a real insecurity about it uh and that's going to and that's going to steal their attention in one form or another uh but emotional roasting as he explained it to me is you kind of decide like well what are the things that you really don't want me to say what are the things you can't even admit to yourself and and you go at those kinds of insecurities and and, and so that's you know that the, but the point i think the sort of you know the common denominator with that is you need to say something if you're trying i mean if this is the way that you're trying to talk trash it, you know because there are lots of ways there's polite trash talking there's <laughs> you know um you know there, there's there's insulting trash talk there's you know just purely distraction you know trash talk uh, via distraction but if you're trying to say the insulting thing that gets at someone's insecurity you know, you need to you need you need to go at them in a way that is going to be undeniable, right? In a way that they're they're going it's going to be impossible for them to shut that out. Uh, but to go back to the point about craft, and there is craft to joke writing, and you know, it is it's about what you say, but it's also about how you say it, mm-hmm. and it can also be about when you say it right? Like if you say something that's easily dismissible or you say it, let's say pregame when I'm, you know, I have time to kind of recenter and regain my focus. Maybe that's not, maybe that's not going to work, but saying a thing that is going to stick in someone's mind and becomes undeniable is, is, you know, that's, that's one of the, that's one of the ways to be an effective trash talker. So you can think about, Gary Payton once said to this guy, this NBA player named Jamie Fike, who was, you know, end of bench type player. Uh, he said to him, you're not going to even be in the league next year. You know, that was his. And for, for Jamie Fike, that struck a real nerve because he was insecure about his place on the roster. He was insecure about his place in the league. And it was harder for him to dismiss that because it was a genuine insecurity. So if you can find someone's genuine insecurity, you you push them, not to get too sciencey on it, though I do get sciencey in the book, you push them into what's known as a threat state, right? And when you're, someone's in a threat state, we have a biological response to that in our bodies that actually detracts from performance, right? We're preparing for attack when we're in a threat state. And and so that that that's a that's a terrific way to, to you know to make someone play poorly. Yeah. Where does pettiness fit into all of this? Because I also enjoy pettiness as well and this is part of another I guess a subgenre of trash talking. Well, yeah, I mean pettiness is inherent to trash talk. Right? That like one of the you know, there was a um there was a study that came out of Georgetown and uh, and the University of Pennsylvania that looked at trash talk in the workplace from a few years ago. And one of the things they found is that the targets of trash talk were you know were more motivated to see their opponents lose as a result. It wasn't that they were more motivated to win; they were more motivated to see their opponents lose. And if you think about what that I mean, what that means, that's that's reaching a level of extreme pettiness. Right. It's saying, like, I don't care if this costs me something (laughs) as long as it costs you more. Right. Right. And and that is, you know, and that's true throughout, you know, you know, throughout human time that we are petty with our rivals. Mm -hmm. We are petty with people that we see as our antagonists. And so. Again, you know, pettiness can be used in a number of ways, or I think manifest in a, in a number of ways with trash talk. One is you'll see it like guys like Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant and Tiger Woods, right? That they'll imagine these kinds of slights, right? They'll create motivations for themselves, but it's because they understand that it's going to trigger this kind of like pettiness mechanism in their mind mm-hmm. that's going to create motivation that wouldn't otherwise exist. But because it does make us petty, you'll also just see some like truly petty behavior, which <laughs> like, you know, which we all love because, you know, pettiness is hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Like you see it all the time on um, Inside the NBA where Shaq and Barkley are arguing about something and one of them calls the other one like petty white, right? Like, because <laughs> yeah. they're always talking about their records or what they achieved when they were playing back in the day. And so that's also funny, too, because I like that aspect of the pettiness of what you're talking about with Jordan and like Tiger, for example there's an element of keeping the receipts or the track record. And like you <laughs> said, in sports, generally there's a clear winner and a clear loser. Sometimes the ref will blow a call or something like that. It might be controversial, but almost 80 or 90% of all the games 
end with a clear winner. Like, this team was better than you today, and they beat you, or they beat you four times in that seven-game series. But in business or in life, there's no clear winners, right? Like, you know what I mean? Amazon might beat, like, Apple for three or four financial quarters, and that's great. And then Apple releases some new iPhone, and then they're back on top, and then Amazon's down. Like, there isn't the same kind of clarity. So, like, pettiness is great at keeping the receipts and keeping the track record so that when you – like you said – I want to see you lose when you can come back and say, I've proven that you've lost now. There's a joyfulness to pettiness. I mean, petty, yeah. yeah. I mean, it might be, it might not be like the, the healthiest human impulse that uh, you know, the, the joy that or, or expression, the healthiest expression, the joy that comes out of pettiness. But absolutely. I mean, why do we keep receipts? Because of pettiness, right? right? Why, why do we say the thing? You know, why do we have to, you know, rub salt in the wounds, you know, after <laughs> someone loses? Because, because of pettiness, why does you know when uh, when 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 Damian Lillard misses those two free throws at the end of the game against the Clippers in the bubble, famously, you know, toward the end of the regular season, and Paul George and Patrick Beverly are then you know not only talking shit on the sidelines, but then up in the the comment sections on Instagram talking shit to him. That's pettiness, but at the same time. <laughs> Damian Lillard used that same pettiness as motivation to then score like, you know, 50 points in the next three games after that. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's, you know, pettiness as with all of trash talk is a double-edged sword. You know, it it cuts, it cuts both ways, right. We can use it, you know, we can use it to gloat. We can use it for motivation. We can use it to try to demoralize someone, but what we try, but we never really know how someone else is going to respond. Mm-hmm. And this idea too of demoralizing someone, you you have a fascinating theme that runs throughout uh, your book, Trash Talk. Um, it's the idea of the fringe status, right? That trash talking, it's almost like an eviction notice for the tribe. Like you said, like, you don't belong in the NBA. You don't belong here, right? And it's that yeah. idea that you can like, you separate that person. And that's sometimes where a lot of insecurity f- comes through because you don't always feel like you fit in. So if you can provoke that, like, you have no business being here. Larry Bird was great at that. You know what I mean? He's like, I'm going to go left. Are you going to guard me? I'm going left. Yeah, and Larry I mean, Larry Bird would say exactly that. I mean, it, I think it was the first time he played against Dominique Wilkins. You know, he, he literally said to me, he's like, he's like, you, you don't belong here, Holmes. Like, you don't belong in this league. I mean, it's kind of... It almost becomes, you know, cliche trash talk at this point. Like you can't guard me Mm -hmm. or whatever. But it's like if you really stop to think about it, it's one of the most insulting things you can say to someone. It's one of the most threatening things to say you can say to someone is that you don't belong here. Mm -hmm. You have no business being on this court. Right. And that what that taps into is, you know, as you were saying, is this kind of like primal fear that you know has existed throughout human history about being rejected from the tribe about being ostracized from the tribe if we don't belong it's fear of social rejection and if we feel like we don't belong like we don't measure up we're going to get kicked out of the tribe and that taps in to these incredibly primal fears of like well how am i going to feed myself you know how am i going to hunt for food how how am i going to protect myself from predators so it's really interesting that like as evolved as we can be, however many thousands of years, you know, after, you know, crawling out of the primordial soup and into caves and, mm-hmm. you know, around fire pits and beyond, that these really deeply ingrained fears are the same things that we're going to, that we can like most easily tap to tap into and create insecurity around. Nobody wants to be picked last in gym. Right. And it's not just that like, you might not even care about being a great athlete right but there's something about that public humiliation about being picked last of being seen publicly as not measuring up that's incredibly threatening and again this idea of threat is one of the things that when we talk about sports psychology is so important in terms of like whether or not trash talk might work is can you make someone feel threatened and it's not about physical threat it's about all these other types of psychological threat I think a great example of what you're talking about is Russell Westbrook. When he was playing for the LA Lakers, he was terrible. <laughs> like, there's no yeah. really uh, way around that. Like, he was shooting like 28% or even lower sometimes from three point. He had terrible fourth quarter games, uh, fourth quarters where he would go for O for something. And so eventually he he got saddled with the name Westbrook. 
But what yeah. was fascinating about the name West Brick was that this wasn't, like you said, just two guys, Larry Bird or somebody on the court. Like, this wasn't players from Sacramento or the Warriors trash-talking him. Fans were trash-talking him and calling him West Brick. So now this is like social media has added a new element where, like, guys like Jordan and Bird and Magic, when they played, they only had to deal with trash-talking for the, the two hours or the 48 minutes of a game. But now guys like Russell Russell Westbrook have to constantly hear chirping from fans on social media, and that's that's a consistent like rejection, like you don't belong here. Well, it brings up an interesting point. A couple of things. One is that you say, well, they have to deal with it, right? This twenty four seven. They have no choice. You know, it, it exists on social media. It exists around the clock. But that's actually not true, right? He doesn't have to deal with it. He chooses to engage with it, right? Any of us can choose whether we want to opt into, you know, the chatter of social media, whether we want to hear the discourse back and forth, or if we would just want to delete the app, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you don't have to look for that kind of validation or criticism or judgment. It exists. You're, I mean, you're obviously a hundred percent right that it exists in all of these places in this surround sound way that didn't happen before. But it's not inherent to us that like we have to be exposed to it. You know, we we do have some agency there. And the other interesting thing that I about. Russell Westbrook, I almost called them Westbrook, which yeah. would have been bad. Yeah. Uh, you know, but what he's that, what that, now. yes. And I'm so happy for him. Cause he's like, I, I do. I love Russell Westbrook. Like as a player, his passion, there's something so noble about the way he plays the game, the way he cares. But, you know, when he sort of, you know, came out publicly and, and asked people to stop calling him Westbrook, Right. He said, "It that's my name and it dishonors my name and I can't handle that. That speaks to one of the other really um, prominent ways or, you know, like easiest ways to get into someone's head with trash talk is to go at their ego, right? Because we're all prideful people and elite athletes even more so, you know, have this outsized pride. But if you allow your ego to be, you know, you know, to be the, you know, the framework through which you're engaging with people, if you respond out of pride, then you're not necessarily, then you're allowing yourself to respond in a way that may be dysfunctional to, you know, to, to peak performance, right? We can look at, think about things like honor culture. Honor cultures exist around the world, you know, and uh, the, the, the way that I always think about it is sort of like, you know, the old Southern you know, the, in the U.S. and the South, the Southern United States, you know, somebody would you know feel dishonored and they would take off their white glove and <laughs> slap someone across the face and say, I demand satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Right. You're doing that because you feel like you've been insulted. Your pride has been hurt. But like you're allowing yourself to be insulted. You're allowing your pride to be hurt because because you're making your pride matter. You're making your reputation matter in a way that it, it doesn't need to like. Ego is the best way to go at somebody because it's going to make them respond in ways that they should not, right? And you can think about that on the court. If you say to someone, he can't go left, he can't go left. Well, what if you really can't go left, but your ego is so big that you just want to prove me wrong, and now you're driving left all game, even though that's not just you know um, suboptimal for your own performance, but also contrary to the game plan. So. So I just think ego is just like just as much as we think about insecurity as being, you know, a great avenue to go at people going at someone's ego is is just as good, if not better. But the thing is, with ego is that like guys like Jordan could back it up. So if you go at Jordan like, man, you can't guard me. You suck. You're you're bald. You're lazy. You call him whatever you want. Jordan will then go out and destroy you. Like, you know what I mean? So ego goes, goes both ways. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's true that I would say that trash talk goes both ways, right? That, you know, you're who you are talking and, and who you're talking to and how you talk to them, you know, can have very different outcomes, right? Someone like Jordan, he was able to channel whatever you gave him into his performance to focus on the performance itself. Right. And to, and to perform it at the best of his abilities. Also, look, he is he's also just such an outlier in these conversations because he like maybe he was distracted. Maybe he was responding out of ego, but he was so good that it didn't matter. Right. Mm-hmm. That's possible. 
But someone like Russell Westbrook, who's a superstar level player, right? A superstar level level player with some flaws in his game, because most people have flaws in his game. But when you start pointing those out, you know, when you start pointing out that he's missing, he's missing from the outside and occasionally missing badly in like ugly and hilarious ways that mm-hmm. like, you know, make great viral clips on YouTube. And he responds to that by feeling attacked, by feeling threatened and wanting to prove you wrong. Like he's not using that in a, in a, in a functional way to improve his game. He's not using that in a functional way to sort of tap into the game plan. He's it's, it's detracting from what he's doing on the court. It's distracting from what he's doing on the court. So some people use trash talk to motivate. Some people motivate themselves. Some people use trash talk to kind of get into the their zone of optimal functioning, you know, to raise their, their arousal and anxiety levels because they need to be all revved up to be at their best. You can think of Kevin Garnett. Some people use trash talk to tap into the game, right, to, to remind themselves to focus on the game intently, to engage and, and, you know, and to increase their effort, Reggie Miller, right. With Spike Lee, like, even though like you could say, oh, he's talking to this guy on the sidelines, he's distracted, but the level of distraction pales in comparison to like the benefit he got from improving his performance, from engaging, you know, from, from uh, refocusing um, his, you know, refocusing on, you know, on the play, the task at hand. So it's not, I mean, none of this stuff you can paint with an entirely broad brush and say, like, this is the way all of this works. Like we said before, that for the same reason that I can't just tell you the one insult that's going to work on everyone, mm-hmm. you have to know how you respond to trash talk. You have to know how your opponent responds to it and use it accordingly. So as we're wrapping up then, like, you didn't seem to come to a, a, a firm agreement in terms of, like, what's too far. Like you said, you it's kind of tailored, right? And so... Have you now, as you've put the book out into the world and people kind of react to it a little bit more as you kind of like see how people view this kind of stuff, is there such a thing as like too far or is it just like you said, every individual is different and so you just kind of, you figure it out as you go? Right. The question of the line, how far is too far? Where do we draw the line? I mean, my point in the book is not so much that there, I don't think there is a line. I do think there is a line. It's more that, there's an inherent problem with the line, which is twofold. One is that people will never agree on how far is too far because your sensitivities might not map cleanly onto my own sensitivities or, or you know, the things that I find morally reprehensible might be different from what someone else does. But the second point there is that even if we, you know, even if you and I agree that there might be a line and we might not agree exactly where it is, there are some people who will say there is no line. Because that's the whole point. I want to cross the line because that's how I offend you. That's how I make you feel threatened. That's how I make you, that's how I steal your attention is by saying something so reprehensible that it's impossible to dismiss. But that doesn't, but, but that, that doesn't mean that there can't be lines or that there shouldn't be lines. And I think, you know, we could look at the example of Colby Covington from this past weekend who was you know fighting against Leon Edwards. And he said all these horrendous things about his, his, his father who was murdered, mm-hmm. right? I mean, most of us will agree that that's like disgusting to like, you know, to be talking shit about someone's murdered father and, you know, disparaging, disparaging him. Not only are you like exploiting this grief, but you're also doing it in a particularly disgusting way. You get branded as an asshole too. Well, so that's the question. The question, it's a question of recourse, right? It's a question of what is the recourse? And, you know, I think, you know, obviously in the UFC, there's the there's the immediate recourse of like ha- getting to punch each other in the face. <laughs> uh, so like so you could say in some ways, maybe that's like the perfect venue for, for any kind. And, and Dana White makes this case. It's the perfect venue for exactly this kind of shit talk or any kind of shit talk because you have to back it up and you're putting your 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 face and your chin on the line. But mm-hmm. at the same time, there you know, there's there's other recourse, too. One is there's there's shame, right? There's public shame, right? And, and, and all these, all of these fighters have come out afterwards and before saying, I hope, you know, I hope Leon, you know, you know, knocks Colby out. I hope he breaks his arm and, you know, and like really, you know, 
you know, really destroys him during the fight. And after the fact, everyone is is saying that Colby Covington is a piece of shit, right? <laughs> like, like, like that, like this is, but, but that only works if Colby Covington has shame in this regard. I'm not saying that he doesn't have any shame, but he, do, he seems particularly shameless in this case, right? He does not seem to be scolded by other people's opinions. So without, without that mechanism of recourse, it, it doesn't do us any good to say there is or isn't a line because it doesn't stop him from saying it. Right. And that's more my point. And then, and then there's a, you know, but the, the question then comes in to say like, well, how could you stop this person from saying it? And the only way to stop is if there are official mechanisms of recourse, right? Because the possibility of getting punched in the face didn't stop him. Mm-hmm. The possibility of public shame didn't stop him. So would the UFC ever adopt a kind of code of conduct or code of language that says these are the things that are off limits? These are the things you can't say. Dana White came out and said that he thought it was nasty. He thought what he said was nasty. And he thinks that bringing people's families into it is a line in his own mind that he finds morally disgusting. But he also says that he's never going to tell people what they can or can't say. And if he, as the, you know, proprietor and, you know, administrator of the UFC is not going to do that, then they're, then it's meaningless, right? He could create a line. He could, you know, and and I wouldn't suggest that he just, you know, unilaterally do it just based on his own opinions, right? That creates problems like, you know, the idea of, you know, the policing of trash talk in the 90s and sportsmanship, right? You need to, I think it's worth at least considering the ways in which you, you can either, you can accommodate different types of trash talk and, and find that middle ground of what's acceptable. But, if he is not going to do that, if he's not going to consider that, then these things are going to happen. The line is going to be crossed and it's going to happen again and again. And it, it's like, even if we did, even if we did do that, there would still be, you would still have people, right. Um, getting upset with one another because, you know, maybe you have someone from one culture, mm-hmm. this happened in cricket, happens in cricket, you know, uh, the Austra- Australian players call, you know, you know, players from India bastards. And in, in, in Australia, that's considered a term of endearment, you know, mm-hmm. like they might not be have been using it in an endearing way, but it's not considered like a horrible thing to say. In India, it's, con- it's considered incredibly offensive. So you're going to have this kind of, you know, the cultural clashes, especially in international competition. So, again, it's not that there isn't a line. It's that a lo- lines exist everywhere. And I do think it's important to have the conversation about what what happens when we cross the line, right? What kind of ideas are we introducing into the public sphere? What are we normalizing? And I would suggest that someone like Dana White has a responsibility to at least consider that, right? And whether where whether or not he would legislate against it in some way or another, I think it's a little, uh, I mean, it's a little easy. It's a little hack to just say like, well, people are going to say whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Like, you 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 are introducing discourse into the public sphere that you that you find morally reprehensible. Maybe take a minute to think about it. This idea of introducing uh, discourse into the public sphere it, it echoes a lot of um, when Trump was first running for presidency. And I don't want to always bring everything back to Trump. I know that's a common example, but again, just because he's such a product of the eighties and nineties, so when he was like giving everybody like nicknames and like uh, talking about his dick size and these kind of things or whatever. Part of me was laughing because it's like, I know where he's coming from. I know this culture and like, this is, this makes sense, but it, it, it out in the political sphere, it doesn't make sense. This level of discourse that you're talking about, right? Like if he, if this was like Muhammad Ali saying, I'm the greatest to Sonny Liston or something like that, that makes sense. And then they can go and they can bash each other in the ring in the political sphere. It didn't make sense he was violating norms or established norms or unspoken rules. And so that's where right. a lot of people started to get rubbed the wrong way. Well, th- I mean, even that idea of does it make sense or not? It's like, well, did it make sense? He won. Right. Yeah. So it's like, did it make sense? Maybe, maybe it's, you know, by that metric, maybe it did make sense, but does it make sense in terms of like the way we want to be as a society, like the go. way we want to treat, the way we want to treat one another, you know, the, 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 
the types of things that we want to, you know, that we want to accept, you know, not just in terms of the way we treat other people, but the way other people treat us too. I mean, look, Trump, Trump brought trash talk tactics to the political sphere in a way that had never been done before. Mm -hmm. That isn't to say that incivility didn't exist in politics. There's always been incivility, especially, you know, in politics, you know, in Roman politics, you know, early America, there was a, there was a, there was actually like a civilizing movement in the early 1900s that tried to restrain the incivility and violence of politics. And it's those more recent norms that Trump is really transgressing, which isn't to take away from that transgression. I mean, there are still repercussions for that. You know, his nicknames, his showmanship, you know, carnival barking, his marketing, talking about his dick size. You know, we could even say that some of that stuff is acceptable, like, within the realm of like a debate stage within the realm of like talking to your peers. But the thing about Trump is that he demonstrated no limits whatsoever on what he said or to whom he said it. Right. It wasn't just that he was talking trash. He was also bullying. Mm -hmm. He was looking not for a response, which I would suggest is, you know, a prerequisite of trash talk is that you're presenting a challenge and looking to see how the person is going to respond. Whereas he was talking, you know, he was abusing, verbally abusing in a way to shut people up, in a way to shut down discourse, to shut down, you know, people who, who disagreed with him, who wouldn't pledge fealty to him. And, you know, that that's more fascist than anything else. I mean, that's not, yeah, I, I don't, I, I think there was a point at which he stopped talking trash and started to be abusive. But even still, I and I I think that even in the trash talk, it's you know we could have that conversation about like what is the sort of societal impact of that, and do we want to accept it or not? And frankly, we should be having those conversations before we start having it about you know athletes. Yeah, and that's what I like too about trash talking is because you get a chance to respond. So when somebody yeah. says to you, "You don't belong here in the NBA," we're like, "All right, I'm going to put twenty on you now." All right, like. Yeah. You yeah. get a chance to respond. And it's the same thing when you were talking about like with Jeff Ross and the roast battle in the comics or whatever. They both get to go back and forth with each, with each other. It's not like one comic's just using the other one as like a human pinata. You both get to yeah. make like miscarriage yeah. jokes or whatever the offensive thing is. The response, the response is, again, is inherent to trash talk. Even if you don't come back at me, that non-response is a kind of response, right? Mm -hmm. Tim Duncan Tim Duncan, absolutely. Tim Duncan, John Stockton, right? These guys that used, you know, that that either ignored it or dismissed it, you know, and focused instead on their own performance. That focusing on their performance is a kind of response. They're choosing not to engage with it is a kind of response. But how we respond, the nature of our response helps define the character of the trash talk itself, right? Like, if you say something that's insulting, quote unquote, but I don't allow myself to be insulted by it? Was it insulting, right? If you say something that's meant to be upsetting, but I don't allow myself to be upset by it, then it wasn't upsetting, mm -hmm. sort of definitionally, right? But at the same time, if you say something that, in my mind, crosses a kind of moral line, right? If you say something that's racist, if you say something that's homophobic, and I choose to ignore that, you know, that's a little bit more of a gray area, right? Like it's, you know, in my, by not responding, am I helping to normalize that kind of discourse? And so do I have a moral imperative to then respond to you, even if it comes at the cost of my own competitive performance? And I don't have a, I don't have an answer to that, but that's, I, to me, that's one of the more fascinating uh, tensions that exists in this space. Yeah. You seem to like these stories. Like, They're, they're sports stories, but they're also non-sports stories. Your first book, Arena, kind of like yeah, document, Yeah, like it documented a lot of the, the culture around like game day, for example, and like uh, cookouts and things like that. Like the way we kind of approach and who's working at the arenas and things like that. And this one, Trash Talk, is again, it's, it's, um, it's another game within the game, I guess is the best way to put it, right? What is yeah, it? Yeah, it's... What is it you're looking for? Why are you telling these kind of like, quote unquote, alternative stories? You know what I mean? Outside of the traditional, like, that Super Bowl was amazing and like uh, Patrick yeah. Mahomes is a great football player. 
I don't know. Those, I mean, those have always been the stories I've been drawn to. And I don't know if it's just because like in terms of my own writing career, I've been, or at least I've, it's felt like I've been something of an outsider in some ways. Like I've never been a beat reporter. Um, you know, even, even when I've, you know, most of my jobs, you know, working editorially have been kind of like feeling like I need to prove myself, need to find the interesting angle, but those are also the writers that I'm drawn to the people who, you know, write the story you didn't expect, you know, write about the topic you're unfamiliar with or write about the familiar topic in an unfamiliar way, right? Mm -hmm. Give you a new way to look at something that you thought you knew. You know, for, for my first book, The Arena, you know, I really wanted to explore, you know, it's it's these spaces that we're familiar with, but almost go unseen, you know, so it was like the subcultures and shadow worlds that exist in and around the game. And for Trash Talk, it felt very similar to me because it's this thing. It's a, it's in the ether, right? Especially for those of us who grew up in the '90s. Like trash talk is everywhere. It's like this intangible thing that informs the way we speak, the way we compete, you know, the way we interact with one another. But nobody's ever actually explored what it means to be a trash talker, or where it comes from, or how it works. And so I wanted to understand that not just in terms of you know, athletics and sports. And so we can better understand these people we hold up and idolize or disparage because they don't handle it well, or we find them to be unsportsmanlike, but also because I think by looking at it, we'll, we will understand ourselves better as, as people, because competition is a pretty universal, you know, human pursuit, like whether it's socially, whether it's athletically, whether it's uh, politically, we compete with one another. And I think this helps us understand something about ourselves as social and competitive creatures. So I really, I thought, I thought there was a lot of, you know, I thought there was a lot of open ground here is the long, is the short answer to that long response. Yeah, no, I get it because like until I'd seen like a, an advanced blurb of your book or whatever, I was like, oh, yeah, we never really do talk about trash talking. Like, there's so many yeah. podcasts and so many articles and so many different books and documentaries about sports, about athletes, all kinds of different tracks or whatever, right? But trash talking, which is one of those things, like, even we have shoe documentaries. You know what I mean? We talk a lot about the shoes that the players yeah. wear. But trash talking as one of the things that we just kind of do, this is like nobody's really ever acknowledged it. And I'm like, I was grateful that you took the time to do it because I'm like, like I said, I grew up in the 80s and 90s basketball. So I'm like, I love this stuff. Like more yeah. like, you know what I mean? Like, I love the Reggie Miller versus Spike Lee and Gary Payton and like. Uh, well, and it, that goes back. I mean, this stuff, this stuff is inherently, uh, it's inherently attractive. It, it, it draws us in. It's magnetic, right? Yeah. Because I mean, one of the core functionalities of talking trash is it raises the stakes of competition. It raises the psychological stakes, right? It puts more on the line. It makes the outcome of the match matter more than it otherwise would. So when you see two people talking trash, it makes, it makes, it brings meaning to this encounter that it wouldn't necessarily otherwise have. There's something almost existential about that. So of course we're drawn to it, but then when we're, we're drawn to it, and this is the same stuff as like, you know, like, you know, rap beefs on Twitter or, you know, reality, reality television, you know, straight to camera, you know, shit talking, <laughs> um, you know, the drama, you know, it's drama. This is, this is at its core, it's drama. So we love it. But, you know, I feel like we should understand what's really happening when people are talking trash to try to dissect it a little bit. What's really being said, what's really happening under the surface, because I think when we don't understand what's happening, we run the risk of responding in an inappropriate way. And that could be, you know, that response could be competitively. Like we get upset at someone or, you know, we feel threatened by some, by what someone's saying, or it could be an inappropriate response societally. Again, mm. that's like, we start to penalize you know, what people are saying, because we don't understand, you know, what they're really suggesting in their trash talk, because we don't recognize it, or we don't penalize, we don't restrict it, because we simply, we, we, we do simply, you know, accept it, even when what is being suggested, what's being introduced in the public sphere, is something really toxic. And that's, you know, that's, I would make the case, right, with, you know, some, you know, online online discourse and political discourse with Trump in particular that that is what's happening and we should understand that when it's happening so that again we can respond in the right way in the way we want to respond it mirrors a lot of the articles you see like in Forbes magazine and stuff like that like can you curse at work 
right? Is some and sometimes you'll see like people that drop f bombs or intelligent people or like you see those kind of like back and forth, yeah. right? Like don't use this type of language at work or like I said, like people who swear are more intelligent and like you know. So it it's kind of like getting at what you're saying, which is like. I just understanding the the things that we kind of take for granted, the social norms and the way that we operate and the ball busting and the things that we do, which is what trash shocking is, and just kind of unpacking it. So thank you for that. Yeah, so the book is called uh, Trash Shock, the only book about destroying your rivals. So thank you for helping me do that. Yeah. The only book about destroying your rivals that isn't total garbage. Because yeah. of course we had to talk we had to talk a little trash <laughs> in the book title too. And uh just one quick last question. When you talked to Jeff Ross, did he uh, did he do anything? To, did he say anything to you? Did you get trashed by Jeff Ross? Because that would be an honor too, right? Yeah, it, it certainly it certainly would have been. No, Jeff didn't make uh, didn't make fun of me. You know, I think. Oh darn! You know, next time. Yeah, yeah, maybe next time. I, you know, I. It's kind of like if you walk up to a sports reporter. I think in the you know at a bar who's just having a beer when he's when he's off duty. Like okay. he might not want to talk. He might not want to talk to you about like you know you know the 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 Knicks second rotation. But so so maybe you know we were we were talking in a professional. You know, oh, okay. in a, that's you know, funny, the yeah. professional context, so he wasn't on the clock. Yeah, yeah. When Don Rickles died, a lot of, like, comics uh, or people that work in comedy were, like, were telling stories about, like, the things that he said to them. And it was, like, a badge yeah. of honor, right? Like, you want For sure. Absolutely. Well, that's, again, you know, in the right in the right context, you know, talking trash is inherently flattering, right? It's a, because someone views you as someone who's worth talking trash to. Or at least, and they know who you are, too, right? So, like... They recognize they recognize you as a threat. Mm-hmm. You know, they recognize you as a rival. And that's uh, you know, if you if you understand it in the right way, it's an inherently flattering thing. Yeah. All right. That's a positive note. We can end it there. Thank you so much for like hanging out. Uh, thank you so much for the book. I, as you can tell, I clearly enjoyed it. So, do you have any ideas or anything for what you're thinking about for your next book? Like I said, you kind of I know this one just came out, but have you yeah. started thinking a little bit more? You know, there's a lot, there's so much in this book that I feel like this, you know, I mean, I feel like everyone who writes a book says I could have written six books, you know, based on all the information that I came across here. But I, I, I don't, I'm not saying this will be another book, but I do think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting space and kind of, uh, you know, mental toughness and, you know, performance under pressure that some of the stuff that I had to learn about, because again, when you talk trash to someone, you're putting pressure on their performance, you're raising the stakes on their performance. And the response to that, you know, responding in a mentally tough way is so important in those moments. So I'm, I, I, I'd be curious to see if there's something, something in that space that I might be able to find an angle for, but no guarantees at this point. Yo, that was Rafi Cohen talking about his outstanding book, Trash Talk, the only book about destroying your rivals that isn't total garbage. I'm Sammy, host of My Summer Lair. In the introduction to this episode, I talked about how much I adore trash talking. Oh, and I do. We didn't fully cover it in this conversation, but trash talking is about accountability. It's recognizing your gifts, your abilities the time and the work you've put in to get to this point and establishing your presence. It is a common human experience. It's so dumb, but it is a common human experience to be overlooked, to be undervalued. People will consistently doubt you. That's why trash talking is beautiful because it's the rejection of the doubts and asserting I'm good. This isn't arrogance. It's understanding who you are and effectively communicating that fact. Michael Jordan is good at basketball. Steph Curry is good at shooting. Stephen King is good at writing. These are not controversial opinions. These are facts. You can hate. You can be jealous. You can resent. You can dispute. And it's all as useless as getting angry at the sky for raining on your picnic. Accepting that you're good naturally creates accountability. you got to serve the gifts you've been given. If you're good at writing, that doesn't mean you have a responsibility to craft a bestseller. But it does mean you got it right. That's why Trash Talk is inspiring because it reminds people you are good. Because as much as people will doubt you, they will also resent you as well. I thought you said you could write. You told me you know how to play ball. You just missed five shots in a row. You said you were good. 
This is resentment, but in a warped sort of way, it's also accountability. When you're good, you want people to hold you accountable. We do this all the time. Kevin Durant is an amazing, amazing basketball player. And yet, for all his gifts, for his status, he should have more championships. There's accountability there. In the 1988 All-Star three-point contest, we're talking uh, Danny Ainge, Dale Ellis, um, I think Byron Scott was on there. Uh, oh, Cleveland Cavaliers point guard, Mark Price. We're talking some incredible three-point shooters. Larry Bird walked into this change room, looked around, looked around that Craig Hodges, Seattle's Dale Ellis, Cleveland Cavaliers point guard, Mark Price, looked around at all these guys and announced to this change room of incredible snipers and shooters, Guys, have you decided who's coming in second? Bam! That's fantastic. Larry Bird understood he was good and he effectively communicated it to that room. That's hope. That incites your passions and motivates your vision. That's refreshing. It's also a tight snap. This conversation is far from over. We gotta talk some more. And yeah, some of that talk will be trash. Sign up for my pal Sam newsletter at mysummerlayer.com slash subscribe or Google my pal Sammy Substack. Think your fingers can handle all that? I don't know why you're still listening to me right now instead of Googling my pal Sammy Substack and signing up. Man, I heart trash talking so much. <laughs> uh, good days. Thank you so much for listening to me in the Netflix world. Trash talk, yo.